0: Well, good morning. Ready to uh, ready to go here, John Scholes, along with Stan Feinsilberg, our lawyer for the uh, for the hour, courtesy Sam Firu to Market LLP. You want to reach out to Stan anytime when we're not doing this hour one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred to reach Stan. Any other time, help at employmentlawyer.ca, and you always have the option of the website, which is free and anonymous to learn more and reach out to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We're going to get into the, uh, the email bag this morning for sure, because it is like busting at the seams, man. So we'll do that here in just a bit. But uh, we always start off with your case or thought of the day. Stan, what do you got, brother?
1: Uh, good morning, John, and good morning, Toronto. Uh, for the thought of day, John, I want to talk about a recent case I came across, which really kind of delves into the, the legal you know, workings of the system itself. Because, John, I find that a lot of people kind of have a misconception about how the court system really actually works. You know, they often give it a lot more power in their minds than in reality it kind of displays. You know, unfortunately, things tend to move fairly slowly these days with the backlog created after the pandemic. And also, courts are pretty loath to really punish uh, parties for not doing certain things unless they've essentially left them no choice. And in a recent case, the defendant basically left the court no choice, and in that instance, the court actually showed the the very strong powers it does have when it wants to use them. So in a recent case called 180 University Management and Khan, the defendant, Mr. Khan in this case, he was essentially accused of defrauding the plaintiff, the company. Uh, As part of any legal process, there is a step called discoveries or an examination where one party essentially gets to sit down the other party and ask them any relevant question they want about the case. And that was scheduled with Mr. Kahn. But unlike most cases, Mr. Kahn just chose not to show up for that examination. So in, in that instance, the plaintiff's lawyer started the long process of going to court and forcing the court to actually force Mr. Khan to show up to this examination. And multiple months later, they're at before the court with, uh, at a motion, and the court orders Mr. Khan to show up, and the, Mr. Khan uh, consents and agrees to show up. And again, despite that, months later, they have this examination scheduled, and he doesn't show up again. Oh, so the plaintiff's lawyers go back to court, and they ask the court again to do something about this. And in this instance, the court actually does something pretty dramatic, they struck Mr. Kahn's defense or statement of defense. So what that specifically means here is essentially they've removed his ability to defend the lawsuit, uh, which means that everything that the plaintiff is alleging in their statement of claim is deemed to be true. Wow. And so beyond that, they the court says to Mr. Kahn, you guys show up within two months to do this examination one more time. They give him one more opportunity, and again he consents to this. Several days later, as the lawyers are trying to figure out the logistics, the defense lawyer comes out and says, "Mr. Khan has told me he's not showing up again." So back to court a third time, and before the same justice, who was thankfully seized of this uh, of this matter, he basically gave himself the authority to just sit on this case until it was re- these issues were resolved. And in this instance, this. You know, he really brought the hammer down on the defendant here because after striking the defense, there wasn't necessarily much left to do from the litigation standpoint. But for the personal defendant, you know, went to to disrespect the court system and the court in such a manner that's really where you see the court take exception. Uh, and, and here it took exception and held Mr. Khan in contempt of court and ordered that he be fined ten thousand dollars and. Be jailed for sixty days, wow. and at the end of that sixty days, he was to reappear in court and to now, you know, essentially agree to this examination, or he would be ordered to be jailed further until he agreed to the examination. Uh, now, this is all hypothetical, unfortunately, because apparently Mr. Khan is safely away in Florida, and it doesn't look like he's probably coming back to Canada anytime soon. So now court you know the plaintiffs lawyer have to essentially try and enforce this order in Florida. but it does give you an understanding that when the court wants to and I wish I wish John that they wanted to more often. No kidding. that when they want to, they can really punish a, uh, a party when it's just acting ridiculous. Uh, as in this instance Mr. Kahn clearly was.
0: Did he? Did he do the sixty days? Has he gone that far? He's still in Florida.
1: Well, they have. They because he's in Florida right now. You know, they can't throw him in jail here. So they essentially have to go and Extra have item. the order issued in Florida. Yeah, so Most states uh, have what's called a reciprocity with our court system, meaning right. that they just uh, immediately view any order from our court system as justified and entered. And enter that order into their system, essentially. Gotcha. So you, yeah. you know, it, the difference being that, like, if you had a court order from some some uh, third world country where we may not have the same confidence in their legal system, they don't get that, you know, uh, deemed reciprocity. They actually have to go and prove their case again. But here, you know, if we have a court order from a Ontario judge, a Florida judge will look at it and say, okay, and we'll enter the same order into their system. Which then begins the long road to extract Mr. Khan from Florida and have him serve jail time here for contempt of court, which is just amazingly rare to begin with.
0: The guy picked the wrong country to fly to, man. They'll just extradite him. What a total, <laughs> what a total DB this guy is. Uh, uh, f- you know what I mean? Probably like, you a know, classic snowbird. Yeah, smarten up, son. Baker, good way to set the tone for the show. How are you, Bell? <laughs> Hey, John. I'm up. Thank you. I haven't called for a while, but I'm always listening, man. I tuned in and
2: threw the knob away a long time ago, bro.
0: Nice. Good man. What's uh, What's on your mind? Uh, I'm just curious. I
2: often listen to the Employment Hour, and I love it. It's a great show, but I'm just curious. I many. I often hear people say, um, you should refuse a layoff, or if your boss ch- tries to change your kind of work, you should refuse that and like you know, call the number sort of thing. I'm just wondering, how would one refuse a layoff? Like You just keep on showing up and doing your job going, oh, I'm not leaving. Like, <sighs> How would you go about doing that? Well,
1: what well, what you would specifically do is you would hire a lawyer and say to the, who would uh, on your behalf say to the employer that that layoff constitutes to termination. You You're basically, because you can't, you're right, you can't stop them from saying, hey, don't show up to work tomorrow. There's nothing right. you can do about that. But you can make it clear that you don't agree with it and that you don't accept it. And unless it's part of your contract already, that essentially they don't have the authority to do it. And that's what makes it a termination.
2: I see. Okay, so you would contact your your office, obviously, and compose a letter sort of thing to put in, like, I refuse this layoff. I don't think that it's fair and I want to keep on doing my job or you're going to owe me a bucket full of money.
1: Well, essentially, you would tell them that it's a constructive dismissal, that you're treating it as a termination. If you wanted your job back, you can tell them that, hey, you know, if they call you back right now, we can let bygones be bygones, move past this and assume uh, and act as if it never happened. Otherwise, you could take the position that it's just a termination. They owe you money and you go fight for your severance.
2: Okay. And do you find it's often the case that an employer will let bygones be bygones? Like if you sought legal action against somebody, do you, have, do you think that there's maybe the chance that they'll kind of start treating you bad because of that? And is there a repercussion for you? Like, is there a way to say, hey, you guys are really nice to me before I contacted the employment firm, but now you're kind of like, you're not even talking to me anymore.
1: Yeah, I, I would say in answer to your first question, it's it's. Just, Pretty rare uh, that after a company gets sued or you know they get involved in some sort of legal action that they're willing to just let things go. Uh, it's uh, I would think of it more in context like when you have, when you're dealing with a small business and you're dealing with an owner there there's too much ego involved I find you know because you're dealing with an individual person you, there's no cognitive distance between you and that person essentially uh, that person knows what you did and you, you know what he did because he is the employer ultimately. If you're dealing with a gigantic corporation, there's so many moving pieces that usually, you know, your manager doesn't know what happened between you and, you know, their lawyers, and can usually let it go if you want to come back.
2: Okay. So bottom line, no fear. We shouldn't be afraid to proceed with something against an unfair employer.
1: There's multiple avenues, you know, that you can pursue. Even if you come back and they start, you know, making a toxic work environment. I mean, that in of itself is a constructive dismissal. There's also uh, avenues through the Ministry of Labor where you can actually say, uh, file a complaint, alleging a reprisal for exercising your rights under the, the legislation. And if a, if a court agrees, you know, you can be ordered full back pay for any time missed between the date of whatever happened and the day of the hearing. And they can hit him with a with punitive damages, essentially a fine for the reprisal that could be 10, $30,000.
2: Okay. Gotcha. Understood. Thank you very much. I, I like that you do the show and you do a great job and cheers. We'll talk soon.
0: Thanks, Baker. Thanks. Appreciate it, pal. Keep, uh, keep dry and keep tuned for sure. We'll get into uh, one email here before. Actually, you know what? No, let's, let's get into a break before we get into this list of emails. Uh, you can send one along, by the way, that is help at employmentlawyer.ca. And we continue, this is the Employment Law Show. Stand by. As I mentioned, tons of emails piling up, uh, stand over the last few days. So let's Dig into these suckers. Uh, Kelsey, first one up, says, Guys, I've worked through two separate employment agencies for the same company for over 20 years. They laid me off during the pandemic, and then in January, the employment agency terminated me. Is there anything I can do? Am I owed anything? What do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Kelsey. I mean, even if you're an employee for a temporary employment agency, that employment relationship still exists with that agency, and at the end of the day, if they terminate you, they're going to owe you. Everest based on you know, the usual factors—age, position, length of employment—but uh, in, in Kelsey's um, question, you know, she mentions that she had worked through two employment agencies, yeah. but for the same company for 20 years. And, and the really, and I think that gets the kind of the interesting or the most interesting aspect of that question, which is, well, if she works for that company for 20 years through two employment agencies. Is that company potentially her employer and are they liable for the full 20 years? And, you know, very much based on context here, John, but, you know, I, I could tell you I have a case not too, uh, not too dissimilar from this where I'm arguing that's exactly what's happening that, you know, if you work for a company for 20 years, I don't care if it's through some third party, you know, you're showing up to the same place every day, you're dealing with right. the same people every day who are telling you where to be, what to do, how much, to, how much money you make. You know, and frankly, in these instances, the relationship with the employment agency itself tends to be very tenuous because other than, you know, them paying you the money through, through their pay system, they don't have a real relationship with you. They're not talking to you, you know, even on a monthly basis, usually. So that's on, on paper. Often you know, companies will try to get away with this kind of corporate scheming where they essentially it's a matter of passing off liability. Mm-hmm. They want to pass the liability back to someone else. But courts don't really care about what's on paper often. They care about what actually happened. What do the facts seem to indicate right. the law should be? And in a situation like this, you know, the facts can very easily indicate that it's, in fact, the company you worked at for 20 years that's your employer, not the company that just happens to send you a paycheck every couple of weeks.
0: So it it to your point, uh, you know, in, in typical lawyer speak, it depends, right? I mean, so it's not always the employer that would pay your severance. Sometimes it is the uh, the agency that would have to pay your severance. Does that come up?
1: Well, really, it, the agency is always going to be deemed the employer, I should say, in this situation. There's no question they're, you know, they're the ones who are standing up and saying, we are the employer. The, the other question here is, are they both the employer? Uh, because it, it's not like you can only be... You know, the employment relationship it could be limited to just two parties. You could have multiple parties. Again, corporate entities can be, can, you know, can fall under an umbrella of different corporations. They could you know, all have different functions within one single corporate entity. You know, for example, you could have a holding company that does the payroll, and the holding company that holds the assets, and the holding company that holds the liquor license. All those companies at the end of the day are likely functioning as one single company for the purposes of employment law, and they're all very likely liable to that employee, and so you can't just, you know, as an employer, move money around through various holding companies and then say, well, ABC is not liable because ABC is just uh just holds the furniture. They're not. They're not the employer. That's exactly why the courts have set up this this legal principle of common or related employers, where you can say, I know they're technically all my employers, and they're all liable for for my severance.
0: Rajesh is next, this guy's my employer is selling the business and tells me the buyer is going to hire me. However, it's been almost two months, and I haven't heard anything from the buyer. Can I still go after my former employer but I, I guess Rajesh is assuming that he's now unemployed.
1: well, I mean it sounds sounds very much like it if you haven't uh, heard from who the company that's supposed to be your employer for two months. I think it's fair uh, to assume that you might be terminated at that point yep. uh Good and time. the answer. Rajesh, is, you can absolutely go back after the seller um, because, first of all, they clearly lied to you. The, you know, after two months, if the buyer hasn't contacted you, I don't think there's much else left to wait for. And beyond that, you, know, you have two years to enforce your rights. That's what the statute of limitations is in Ontario. So you could go after him two months later. You can go after him 23 months later. It doesn't matter because you still have that legal right to go after him and enforce those rights.
0: You know, it's it's interesting too. So, how does that how does that severance again? It, it always gets down to a question of severance. So, in this case, there's a seller and there's a buyer. How do we determine which entity owes the severance? Is it a matter of if you've never stepped foot in the workplace with the new buyer, it is the responsibility of the seller, or if you've spent one day working for the new company, it is now their onus to to pay you your severance if they let you go? How does that work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, John. And really the starting point is to figure out first, what kind of sale are we dealing with? Because okay. there's really only two types of sales when you're selling a business, uh, or two types of ways to sell a business, let's say. You can sell the assets of the business, meaning all of its inventory, all the buildings, the payroll, the, its clients, etc. cetera. Uh, or you could sell the shares of the business, you know, think of any publicly traded company where shares are sold every single day of that business. Right. So if we're dealing with a share purchase, really, not, from the employment law relationship standpoint, nothing changes. You know, If I'm employed by Walmart and the Waltons decide to sell all their shares in Walmart, that doesn't change my relationship with Walmart. There might be new owners and they might decide to do different things, but at the end of the day, I'm still employed by Walmart all my years, you know, that I've been there, nothing really changes. With an asset purchase, that's when things get very complicated. Because with an asset purchase, from a legal perspective, there is always a termination that happens. Because legally speaking, what's happening is you're going from one corporate entity, ABC Corporation, let's say, to another corporate entity, you know, BCD corporation. Because those are different legal entities, they're different legal people ultimately your employment is ending with ABC. Now, if BCD decides to offer you a new job, well, certain legal principles start to kick in in that point. So for one, our statute, the Employment Standards Act, has a provision in there that says, if there's a sale of business and the buyer decides to hire on the employee, then all of their years of service for the purposes of the statute automatically get recognized. And beyond that, under the common law, you know if you're hiring a person uh hire sorry buying a business and hiring that person you know to do the exact same job as they've always done with you know not introducing a new contract or anything like that, then oftentimes what the courts will say is you bought that business as a going concern you bought it you know with all of its assets but also with the liabilities attached to it when you're getting these employees because you're getting all the benefits of that employee, you know, their years of history, their skill set, all of that, all the things they developed with the seller, you're taking on those skills as a buyer. And because of that, the court will essentially say you've recognized their previous years of service with the seller as well.
0: Makes total sense, man. Guys, uh, the email address we're using for the show, uh, Claire is up next, says my department is being outsourced to another company and this new company wants me to stay on as a contractor. Is that legal?
1: You know it really sounds like it's probably not legal. This is again one of those situations that I mentioned earlier, John, where something on paper doesn't necessarily matter and isn't the way that a court is going to analyze the situation so here on paper, you have someone going from doing their job as an employee to all of a sudden becoming an independent contractor for tax purposes uh, and you know I'm sure there's co- very well written contracts to that effect that probably everybody even signed and agreed to but if, you, if you're doing the same job for 10 years as an employee, and then the next day you're doing that exact same job, but now as a contractor, that seems a little facetious. And, and that's probably the starting point here is that it doesn't seem like that's a true, the true nature of the relationship. Clearly, if that was a function that was so you know, necessary to be an employment function, it's hard to say that all of a sudden that you're just now a contractor doing the exact same function. So I would very much say, Claire, that's likely not legal. Again, context is important. And as John said, it it depends. But based depending on the context, I would say that's very likely not legal. And it doesn't extinguish your rights uh, as an employee. Even if you do accept the job as a contractor, you can always come back and say, no, you know what? I was never a contractor. I was always an employee based on what the law says, not these pieces of paper. Yeah. And I want my severance.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We've you know we've often said, and you've said on this show too, Stan, that if it was that easy, every company in Canada would just have contractors. They'd get themselves out of a severance argument or anything. It would be much simpler for every workplace to just have a bunch of contractors. doesn't matter if you're the CEO or the, the, the guy working the line, but it's just legally doesn't work that way, right? Uh, Jason says, guys, uh, good morning. Love the show. Is the general rule uh, of thumb two weeks of severance for every year I work there? Uh, Jason, come on. You know better. What do you think, Stan?
1: Yeah. Hasn't been watching the show clearly, John.
0: Yeah, watching There's, or listening. No, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, no, it, Jason, that's that's not really how employment law works. And I would say two weeks per year is probably on the very low end of what most people can expect. Um, yeah. Really, if you know, as a general rule of thumb, we like to say a month per year, but then it can go much higher than that. If you're, let's say, a short ser- service employee in his sixties and is the CEO of a company, or potentially you know even theoretically lower than that if you've worked somewhere for forty years and aren't very old, and eventually there's going to be a cap on how much you can get because the courts have essentially said twenty four months is the most anyone can expect right. in terms of any sort of notice period or severance period so Jason, I mean ultimately that's not accurate um you know if you're if you're ever uncertain, you can always go to the pocket uh employment lawyer. Yep. Uh, and check out uh, and check that out. And put, plug in your details and see what it uh, spits out for you.
0: Jason, again, as uh, Stan just mentioned, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Free anonymous, the severance pay calculator is there to do exactly the question you were asking. So uh, have a look at that. Let's get uh, Rick on the line. Hey, Rick, good morning. How are you? Well, good morning. I'm good. How are you? Good, sir. What's, uh, what's, uh, what's um, your question?
3: I have a question. I am um, employed as an independent sales rep for a company, and when I make the sale, all of the HST on that sale is paid to the company. My question is is that I receive a commission on that uh, sale, and when I receive that, I am apparently charged, or sorry, apparently they're sending me HST as well on the amount they pay me, which I have to submit to the government. I'm confused, right. confused. in a way that if the company receives all the HST, did they not submit all of that to the company? Or sorry, to the government for that goods that I sold, and then why would I do again HST?
1: So a couple of things are going on here, Rick, and this is actually something we addressed just uh, a couple of minutes ago in the show. So you mentioned that you're employed as an independent agent, uh, and you and you're charged HST. So you are not an employee on paper, to be clear. Employees do not get charged HST. Uh, they have CPP deductions. They have EI deductions. That's frankly the easiest way to tell. Uh, but based on what you're telling me, Rick, you are not deemed an employee on paper. You are deemed a contractor or, or a business. So in, in, in your in your kind of circumstances, I think you're conflating the two. Like. Uh, the HST that they pay on the products, right? Like when they charge a customer HST for whatever you sell, that's just like okay. any other sales tax that you pay on any other product, right? That money goes to the government. When you buy Correct. food, when you buy a car, when you go to the Correct. dentist, there's always HST. And just like they pay, a, you know, or they charge HST on their products, you are charging the company HST on your product, which is you. You are the product. So that's okay. that's what you're getting confused at. Because you're not an employee, you have to remit HST because you're a corporate. You won't either a corporation or sole proprietor, but you're a business. Uh, whether you're truly a business, we can certainly talk about and get into because I, I have some doubts. But that's kind of the difference between what you're, you know, the HST that they're charging to their clients, which they again have to take and give to the government, and then technically the HST you are charging them for your services which you then take
3: and give to the government as well. But isn't that a double dip on the government side? No, because they're different that, products. Because <laughs> the you know, commission on pay comes out of the monies that they received from the client.
1: Right. The commissions you know, so they're they're paying you a percentage, right? A, a yeah. fee for 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 yeah. making the sale. Yeah. And then they're charging the client for the product, but they also have to charge sales tax on that product, just like you charge them sales tax. You know, it's it's not it's not double dipping. It's just there's multiple layers here, and all those layers, if you're truly a business, you know, would have to charge would have to charge sales tax for their products, and then remit that sales tax to the government. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: That makes sense.
3: Uh, okay, so I, I just so I understand. Let's say that product uh, is uh, sold, and then the customer pays all yeah. that HST to the company. Now, at the end of the yeah. week, I get a commission from that sale, which is built into the price that it was sold at. So, therefore, the company takes off of the amount they received my commission, and then I would... Try to understand them, why do I pay HST on what they give me when that HST amount was already paid to the company on the total amount?
1: Because they're different. So let's try a different example. Like let's say you run a trucking company and you deliver cars to a dealership. You know, you deliver that car and then you give the dealership an invoice and you charge that dealership HST. And then they take and they sell that car to me and they charge me HST. HST, It's along every every step of the process, every time there's a service or good that's being exchanged, HST falls on that and usually gets just built into the price, which ends up with the end consumer. Does that make
3: sense? I follow that part, but... uh... I just don't understand why the client is paying all the HST in the product, which is including my commission in there, and to the cost to the to the company, and then I get a, a commission out of that same amount, which is built into that amount. Why am I paying HST again to the government when it's already totally paid to the cost to the to the company?
0: Hasn't been paid for you. You're a business. Been, you're, you're making yeah. money off that. That's, yeah, that's the what, difference. They have yeah. to
1: pay on your services, HST, because you're not an employee, as we say. You got it. Rick, you want yeah. to follow <laughs> up
0: afterwards? We've got to get into a break. You can always uh, call Stan and have that conversation. That's why I give the phone number out, right? Good stuff. one 821 5900 Employment Law Show continues. Hang on. And welcome back Employment Law Show. Stan Feinselberg is your guy. Reaching out to Stan after the show. Any time to have that uh, lengthier conversation. Get some clarity. No problem. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. The email we're actually using on air too. And the phone number 1-855-821-5900. And that website built for you to use freely and anonymously, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Albert, next email up says, fellas, can an employer terminate you while you're on disability leave? Ouch. What do you think about that, Stan? Uh,
1: I think it depends, John. (laughs) I think it depends on whether specifically they're terminating you while you're on a disability leave but having absolutely nothing to do with your disability right. or if they're terminating you in a way that can somewhat be construed as discriminatory because they're terminating you in a way that's related to your disability so to give you an example john if if you're on a disability leave and you know the company decides to outsource your entire department of 100 people right well that's perfectly legal they they're not terminating you in any way related to your disability you just happen to be part of a giant re- reduction in force you know uh, situation where a hundred people are affected now if they were to just eliminate your position individually and then hire someone else for it while you happen to be on this disability leave and you know that might be a little bit uh, facetious again and it may May make you question whether that was legitimate or not, considering they told you that your position is being eliminated, and then just took someone else and put put that person in that position. Right. Uh, oftentimes, John, it's not like you find a smoking gun for discrimination. People are frankly a bit smarter about these things these days, and you know, not not dumb enough to write, "Hey, I'm terminating you because you're disabled." So. That's why you know, and the and the courts recognize this. Actually, the legal test recognizes this, and that's why the test for any discrimination is starts with number one: is there something that could be considered discriminatory? And that all this essentially first step means is: can you show that you've been treated differently in some way, and that you have uh, some that you're part of some protected group, like a dis- disabled people or, or certain racialized groups? that fall within the protected grounds of our human rights code. So in this instance, you're disabled, your position was eliminated, you know, you say that's discriminatory, that is arguably prima facie discriminatory. So it it goes to the next step in the analysis. And the next step basically turns to the company and says, hey, company, what's your side of the story? Tell us why this isn't discrimination, essentially. And you know, if a company says, well, it's not, not discrimination because we laid off 100 people, the entire department got let go, you know, we're so sorry, but his job just happened to be subsumed in that uh, reduction of force action, you know, the court would likely look at that and say, yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like it's discriminatory. If, however, you know, you say that the position was eliminated and I can prove that, hey, well, you just gave that position to this other person, you better have some better evidence to suggest that the position was eliminated or circumstantially it starts to look like it is discrimination. The court will just find that in fact it is discrimination because you can't explain how it wasn't.
0: You get to a Robert's email here, help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's how you handle that one. Uh, it says, I was terminated after 12 years of service. Stan, uh, it was a technical role and I'm in my 40s. I was offered 25 weeks severance. Is that enough? Is that fair?
1: Uh, this is not too dissimilar, actually, from the earlier question we dealt with, which is, is two weeks of severance for every year fair. As I said there, it's usually not And I would would tell Robert the same thing. Uh, You know, one way to look at this, John, is to figure, well, look at what are his minimum entitlements? Just consider it from that perspective. And if Robert works for a company that's large enough, you know, $2.5 million payroll, which is about 50 people making $50,000 a year. So if he works for a company that has a payroll greater than that, then his minimum entitlements are 20 weeks. So, you know, it sounds nice when you say they're offering you 25 weeks. But when you realize, really, all they're doing is offering you five weeks because the 20 is guaranteed already, that doesn't sound like much of an improvement. And in Robert's situation, again, I would say it's probably a very low package for his 12 years. And I tell him to give us a call and uh, talk to a lawyer about what we could do for
0: him. And I get to another one here. Actually, you know what? We'll take a short break. We're going to see if we can get uh, Fab on the line again. Yee. I don't know. It's kind of like bungee jumping. Yeah, exactly. Well, we can, but we won't. Uh, (laughs) won't. Bob, stand by. Your email's coming, buddy. And Saturday edition of the employment law show continues. Hang on. Alrighty, we are back at it. Rob, thank you so much for standing by, pal. How are you this morning? Great. How are you doing? Loving it. What's your question? I've been with a mechanical non-union firm for 38
3: years, and uh, they have no pension. And I was thinking about retirement. Is there, is there
1: any obligation for a severance for our construction company? Uh, sorry to say, Rob, but for, severance is only for people who are terminated, so anyone who retires uh, is not entitled to a severance package.
4: Okay, very good.
0: Thanks, Rob. Appreciate that. Sweet one it would be if he was let go now. After 38 years, he'd be uh, he'd be maxing out for sure to uh, 24 months plus. And like Steve. Hey, Steve, how are you?
2: Hey, good, thanks. Quick question. Um, yeah. I was actually terminated. I've been with the company about one year. They just had promoted us in December, me and another business development manager. They offered the other business development manager the opportunity to stay on board with a pay cut. They terminated me without cause with a maximum of 3 weeks severance. There was no reason for the termination as far as I can see. Do I have any leverage for more severance or to file suit based on the fact that they the two of us were both promoted at the same time we're in the exact same role we started at the same time same metrics one was let go one was kept with the opportunity of a pay cut yeah
3: so
1: steve i mean a court doesn't tell it's a company how to manage its workforce that's why you know you use the term without cause, and that really is how the legal perspective looks at it. Without cause means they don't have to have a reason. You know they can keep their worst employees if they want and fire their best, and th- that's essentially considered management decision. And the law, the courts are not going to necessarily step in and, and enforce. You know which decisions are right or wrong. But in terms of a severance package, what I would say is three weeks sounds fairly low, especially if you were prom- promoted you know, into a more senior position just very recently. Even after one year, you know, depending on your age, depending on your position, how how senior that position is, anything from three to six months is possible. So you you should give us a call in your free time and have a lawyer evaluate your contract and your termination package.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it, pal. And again, uh, if you want to call in, you still got time. And uh, we'll get to Bob. Next email up as we uh, line up some more calls. Stamp off says, guys, my employer gave me a month of working notice. I have an interview in Halliburton, and she denied my request for time off for that interview. Is that allowed?
1: Uh, Absolutely not, John. You know, it really what Bob is describing is just basically ineffective working notice. The whole point of working notice is to let a person know that their job is ending so they can take steps to you know, find their next job. Uh, and you have to give the person that opportunity to find their next job during this working notice period. That's, that's ultimately the purpose of why you gave them this notice. So if you're not giving the employee that opportunity, then Bob can essentially say, you know, none of this time that I'm working counts towards my notice. It's not a not effective you it's not genuine and frankly he can say you know the whole situation is toxic at this point and not going to stick around
0: all right let's get down to uh, to tim's phone call we got some time tim how are you i'm good how are you good buddy what's going on what's your question
4: well i'm a, a sole proprietor i have a small construction company up in cottage country and from time to time, I uh, hire uh, subcontractors to come and help me. And I get conflicting reports from different people as to whether they're classified as an employee while they're working for me, or or just how do I classify that?
1: So it again, it's not about the classification. You just look at the situation. You know, what do the facts look? Like If you're just hiring a subcontractor for a particular project, they've got their own business, they use their own equipment, they hire their own crew members, and it's a you know, limited scope project, that person's never going to be an employee of If you, however, have a subcontractor that, uh, that only works for you, let's say, you, know, uh, you give them 100% of their work, you, they've been with you for multiple years, uh, you tell them where to be, you tell them what to do, you provide all the equipment. That person, you know, is likely going to be an employee, and, and kind of beyond that, there's this middle ground between the two, where even if that person is not an employee, because they're 100% financially dependent on you, they can be deemed what's called a dependent contractor, which means that they're still entitled to severance.
4: Okay. Uh, now, as far as me hiring, do I need to have a contract with them?
1: With the employee or with your subcontract?
4: With, with, uh, if I hire uh, John Doe uh, Construction to come in and install windows for me, for example, do I have to, and, and we we agree on a certain price, uh, yeah. whether I supply the windows or he supplies the windows, they, they either do supply and install or just do the install. Uh, do I have to have a written contract with them, with spelling out? Uh, you never have uh, to have are, a written
1: yeah, you never have to have a written contract. Really, it's not it's not necessary because even if you don't have a written contract, the law implies a contract. It implies certain terms. Or you know, usually you also have what's called an oral contract. Like you said, you've agreed upon price. You guys have set out what each one, each party is going to do. You know, that's an oral contract. But the purpose of a written contract is to ensure there's no confusion. And you know, if you're talking about in this context of a contractor versus employee. It doesn't hurt to have a clause in there that makes it clear that, hey, this person is an independent contractor. They can go work wherever they want. You know, you're not restricting them from working anywhere else. Things like that. Because as much as I've said during the show that you know, piece of paper doesn't entirely matter, and that's not how courts evaluate these situations. You know, it is still a piece of the puzzle. It is something the courts will look at and say, okay, well, you know, contractor, you agree to these terms. You know we have to consider that in this matrix of whether you're an employer or a contractor. Frankly,
0: Tim, appreciate that uh, final call for the day. You got some time now. You as well, if you've been listening, to reach out to Stan and his team. Make this number uh, your best friend going forward. Right, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Emails help at disabilityrights.ca and that website every time. Pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Employment Law Show. Enjoy your day.